0: Hello, welcome to History 110's mega-lecture for the week of September 9th. Um, We are going to start out today, we're going to cover several different large topics, and I want you to make note of what these broad categories are. The first topic we're going to cover is the European intellectual worldview around the time of colonization. We've spent some time talking about the native worldview, and we're going to address how Europeans looked at the world spiritually and culturally, and how that influenced their attitudes about colonization. We are going to then um, focus a little bit on Spanish activity in the Southwest, particularly as it relates to the Apache and Navajo people and the Pueblo and Hopi people, and focus also on the Pueblo Revolt. You have some reading for that this week. We are then going to move to a discussion of the Native American white frontier and how historians have talked about that, what the reality is versus the myth. And we will conclude there with um, greater emphasis on Indians in the western United States. I hope you can also listen before Friday to our teaching assistant, our awesome Jeffrey Harris, is going to give a lecture on American Indian violence in the Southeast, violence and rebellion in the Southeast. um, That's going to dovetail with some of our other material from last week, as well as relate to the theme of rebellion, ethnocentricity, um, and power that we're talking about more generally. Hello. Uh, I'm sitting down to record our mega lecture for this week in our actual lecture hall. So we'll get through part of it, and then I will finish recording it um, later and upload the whole thing. So you will have it in time for um, Thursday and Friday sections, but also, most importantly, for Monday We've spent some time talking about the Native American worldview and belief systems, how they assure subsistence, sustain harmony, um, explain the inhabited world, etc. And now we're going to spend a few minutes on the European worldview at the time of the arrival of Columbus. This, I hope, will help under- help us understand a little bit better the logic behind the colonization law that I talked about in lectures last week and I will go over some of that colonization law again. So at the time of Columbus's uh, voyages across the Atlantic, Europe was dominated by a biblical perspective. The book of Genesis taught that the world was populated by the sons of Noah, and that's how they explained the inhabited world, was through this lens of the book of Genesis. And at that time, as The Bible dictated faith and reason were united. There was no separation between what we think of as science and what we think of as faith. The um, scientists that we know about, Galileo, Copernicus, etc., who crossed the Catholic Church were doing so because they questioned the unity of faith and reason. Um, And at the time of Columbus's voyages and for several centuries thereafter, the European worldview was still dominated by this connection between faith and reason that the idea that all rational thought stemmed from faith in a Christian and Judeo-Christian um, worldview. This is seen most clearly in the Crusades um, when Catholic soldiers and governments from Western Europe descended upon Muslim soldiers and governments um, in Eastern Europe and the Middle East and uh, parts of Asia, to defeat um, non-Christians—that was the purpose of the Crusades—and to take over their lands and and societies. The Crusades defined non-Christians as barbarians, the same way that. Catholic Christians defined Native Americans as barbarians, as savages, because they were not Christians. When Columbus and the Spanish and Catholics from Europe encountered Native Americans in North America, they found that understanding them was very difficult because they had no presence in these ancient texts. They had no expl—there's no explanation for their existence in the Bible, or in Greek and Roman philosophy, or other texts that people in Western Europe depended on to explain their world. Um, and so, naturally, Europeans questioned the humanity of Native American people. Um, in the 1500s and 1600s, because they had no cultural context for them. Um, Therefore, Europeans found what they expected to see, uh, and this is the definition of ethnocentricity. When you look at the world through the lens of your own cultural values, you're going to find what you expect to see in the world, um, because the human mind has a need to fall back on the familiar. The basis for Europeans' claims on the Americas was the ethnocentric view that Indians were not Christians and were therefore savages. Everything about European society, where politics and religion, faith and reason were closely tied together, dictated that Christian peoples had superior claims on territory over non-Christian peoples. This idea of Christian and savage dictated politics and social life in European societies. Now, when Spain first came to the Americas, the interests of the Spanish crown, of Spanish conquistadors, and Spanish priests were in conflict. The crown wanted to increase its national power and its income by extracting resources from colonies in the Americas. Conquistadors were motivated by personal greed, trying to gain uh, individual wealth through this activity. And then priests, of course, wanted to evangelize Native peoples and convert them to Catholicism. All of these goals did not seem uh, reconcilable at the time. And so Spain and the Pope had to develop a series of laws and doctrines that would help to reconcile them. The Pope de- developed the Uh, right of discovery, which rested on the European crusade era idea that non-Christians don't have legitimate political dominion over their own territory because they don't live according to Christian law. This principle of the right of discovery gives the right of dominion to Christian states to acquire the lands of non-Christian peoples. It also protected the claims of one Christian nation against a second Christian power, and this uh, took the form of Spain's superior claim over the New World to Portugal, who was also exploring the New World at the same time. In the 1830s, the United States Supreme Court stated that this right of discovery was the basis for the legality of the presence of the United States, the political dominion of the United States over United of over land um, in North America so that right of discovery doctrine existed and persisted in law both internationally and here in the United States for quite some time as I talked about last week the right of discovery was bolstered by the right of conquest um, the right of conquest emerged from a time when the French and the English were running up against Spanish claims in the the, in North America, and they wanted to challenge Spanish claims to lands that the Spanish didn't actually occupy, but the Spanish had simply explored or laid claim on by virtue of the right of discovery. So the right of discovery was valid in the minds of the French and the British only um, so far as that uh, land was actually occupied by European settlers. In other words, the right of conquest challenged the right of discovery because the right of conquest insisted that you had to occupy territory, not just claim it, in order to exert some kind of political dominion over it. So before the 16th century, a new body of international law was taking shape. That defined the rights and the restrictions and responsibilities of Europeans in the Americas, we need to remember that this history played out the way it did, partly because Native Americans were not Christian, according well they were not Christian, and according to these this right of conquest and right of discovery their status as non-Christians gave them no property or political rights over the land that they possessed and the societies that they created. So there was no recognition on the part of European powers of native people's sovereignty civility or nationhood and that um, basic principle directed a lot of the way that colonization took place. Now, the massive depopulation of the Americas that I also talked about last week led to international criticism of Spain and its practices um, in, in the Americas. In 1512, very soon after Columbus sailed, about 20 years after, Spain passed the laws of Burgos. Burgos is spelled B-U-R-G-O-S. The laws of Burgos regulated interactions between Spaniards and Indians. And they stated that while Indians had no property or political rights, they did have the right to their own persons. So they had the right to be protected as human beings, but not the right to exercise any kind of political or government control over their territory. The laws also reemphasized the need to convert Indians to Catholicism. And to do this, the laws established what was called the encomienda system. Encomienda is spelled E-N-C-O-M-I-E-N-D-A. The encomienda system was similar to a feudal order in in Europe, but um, Spain dictated that... Um, Any land taken over by a Spaniard, by someone who is a citizen of Spain, um, could be occupied or could be settled by people who then were not allowed to leave that piece of land and who must serve the land owner. This is the ways in which it was similar to the feudal system in Europe. The landowner was obligated to treat these folks humanely and also convert them to Christianity while he used their labor. An encomienda is like a large plantation, essentially, and the Spanish established large plantations where things would be farmed or mines uh, where resources would be extracted. And the principle behind the encomienda system was to allow landowners, Spanish landowners, to use native labor Uh, convert them to Christianity and acknowledge the right of Native people to the safety of their persons, but um, at the same time not acknowledge Native people's rights to control or politically assert any kind of control over their land. Also included in the laws of Burgos was the requirmento, which you heard about in section last week, And the Requiremento was a document that was right straight from the Crusades. Um, It was based on the Crusader idea of a just war, that a war between Christian and non-Christian peoples was legal and ethical and moral because Christian peoples had the right to um, dominate and kill, if necessary, non-Christian people. Therefore, any resistance by non-Christian people to the power of Christian people could justly be crushed by Christians, and that was the principle embodied in the Requiremento. The Requiremento is a long document, as you know, giving a brief history lesson of Western Christianity, the emergence of the Pope and the papacy. It ends by asking Indians to recognize the church and the Spanish king and queen as rulers, and it threatens war and enslavement if Indians do not immediately capitulate. Therefore, deaths at the hands of Spaniards or loss of land or other resources at the hands of Spaniards was not the fault of the Spaniards, but was the fault of Indians, according to the requirmento. It was read to Native communities in Spanish, who, of course, did not speak Spanish. Um, Sometimes it was whispered in the middle of the night rather than read aloud. And in the early days of Spanish colonization, if Indian communities did not comply immediately, then the Spanish felt justified in attacking that community and taking over um, their area. So we've talked some about native civilizations and intellectual traditions. We've talked about European intellectual traditions and how a body of international law was crafted based on those traditions to justify the invasion and settlement of the Americas by Europeans. It would be easy to kind of quit the story now, as most U.S. history classes do, and just say that European and American advancement on the continent was an inevitable consequence of European diseases or superior technology or native helplessness or innocence or incompetence or the drastic reduction in native population. But... Doing a History of Native American People demands that we look very closely at the process by which this land was lost and how this population collapse occurred over a long period of time. That's why we focus in this class on the law of colonization, on um, the process of population collapse, and we'll continue to see throughout the semester how these types of laws uh, developed as Europeans took over the continent. Looking so closely and carefully at the process will change our perceptions about this land loss and the population collapse and what it meant for Native Americans. We see, when we look closely at the intellectual tradition behind colonization law, we also look at examples of rebellion like the Guale, the Apache, and others, that Native Americans were agents of political, social, and cultural change for their own communities and then later on for the United States as well. And we'll also see that the United States' expansion to the Pacific was more than a happy accident, that it had strategic purpose and was embedded in a history of international law that justified the United States' actions. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to discuss the period between 1680 and 1848, a long period of time, but we're going to call it the long 18th century, the long um, an 18th century that actually is more like a century and a half. And the reason we're calling it the long 18th century is to convey that while many things, different things happened in many different places, this period should be seen as one kind of narrative, one kind of story that encompasses a region of the western United States and a set of very diverse peoples. Packaging time this way helps us learn and remember what happened here And looking so much at the 18th century gives us a different perspective on U.S. history. We need to remember and learn how Western expansion of the Americas, Western expansion of Americans um, was not inevitable or a result of manifest destiny or migration from the known to the unknown. It was not a frontier story, but it was a long process of conflict between European powers and native nations where power shifted hands many times. So there are several characters we're going to talk about in this long lecture, and I will divide it up into part one, part two. Um, the characters we talk about in part one are the Pueblo Indian communities in what is now New Mexico, the Hopi Indian communities in what is now Arizona. The Pueblo and Hopis are descendants of the folks who occupied and built um, the monuments at Chaco Canyon. We're going to talk about the Navajo communities in Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah. We're going to talk about the Apache in Arizona. We're also going to talk about Spain, France, and England and their various interests in this area. There are two themes that are going to run through this narrative. One is revolt, um, and the other one is a, is exchange. So exchange took place over issues of trade, economic exchange. It also took place over issues of gender, marriage, sex, slavery, and other ways in which cultures um, exchanged ideas and people to move history forward. What underlies both of these themes, revolt and exchange, is the idea of power, and who had power at a given time was not a foregone conclusion. Just because Europe created an international law that justified colonization doesn't mean that Native people decided to accept that law or did not have the means of asserting their own power against that kind of law. So you might have heard over the last... um, over the course of your education about the United States frontier, about the Western frontier. And scholars, historians, have contrasted the frontier with the idea of a middle ground. Um, A middle ground is where this type of exchange that we're going to talk about took place. The most prevalent use of the word frontier designated an area on the edge of American settlement. The land beyond was supposed to be dark, unsettled, and uncivilized. The idea of the frontier stemmed from the ethnocentric view that societies progressed in hierarchical stages, from barbarians, then to hunter-gatherers, then to farmers, then to merchants and city dwellers. Hence, crossing the frontier is a stage in the inevitable progress of human society. That's how people have written about it. But as more evidence has come to light of the devastating consequences of some very inhuman actions on these frontiers, some historians have talked about the frontier in a different way to avoid its progressive kind of connotations. These historians see frontiers not as dividing lines between civilization and wilderness, but as zones where many peoples interacted, where new rules were created, where innovation and acculturation occurred on both sides, and where power changed hands many times. The idea of the middle ground, another name for this zone, was articulated first by a historian named Richard White, who looked at the Great Lakes area of the country and observed a kind of middle ground, a cultural space where people from dissimilar societies could serve their separate interests by observing common and specialized rules. Separate interests were understood and strategized outside the middle ground by these different groups that were coming into contact, yet they deeply affected what went on inside the middle ground. Each of these societies had their own power structures, their own social organizations, and when members of these societies interacted on the middle ground, they brought those cultural assumptions with them. To understand the internal power dynamics of these societies, we must look at attitudes about gender, Race, property, and other things. What we're going to talk about in the next little bit is how a middle ground developed um, in the Southwest and in the West. One important thing to understand about the middle ground was that it's not a merger of two societies, and it's not one society subordinating another society. Rather, it was a space located between societies, usually more than two societies. In the case of the Southwest, the space was negotiated between the Apache, Pueblo, Hopi, and Navajo, then later the Spanish, where each group sought to preserve its own interests in a space of mutual cooperation, this kind of story is the rise and fall of these middle grounds, seen from the perspectives of the major characters who participated. The story I'm going to tell you, stories I'm going to tell you in this lecture. So there was no predetermined outcome, and there was a lot of as much peaceful exchange as there was warfare and violence throughout uh, the western, the territory west of the Mississippi, since the arrival of the Spanish. The early character of these places and times was largely shaped by the fact that imperial powers, France, Britain, and Spain, used this land as a place to play out their own rivalries and power contests. Meanwhile, small local populations of colonizers, of settlers, who were far from the political centers that set policy, interacted with native nations who controlled larger amounts of territory, had healthy economies, and saw alliance as preferable to violence. Events in the 18th century changed this pattern of relations, however, and empires were followed by the American nation-state, which was determined to use Western land owned by Indians and Spanish settlers to accommodate its growing population and its own ideas of equal property ownership. Achieving these goals for the United States required permanent settlement in large numbers, not colonial outposts of distant empires. And so the U.S. way of of colonizing and settling the country was quite different than the Spanish, French, and British ways of colonizing and settling the country. Essential to this settlement was a forceful diplomacy um, in the United States, a strong military, and increasingly rigid power hierarchies of gender, class, and race. Eventually, it was Europeans and primarily British Americans that controlled the politics, the economies, and much of the land of this region, though that control was not, did not go unchallenged. First, we're going to start with some ideas about rebellion. Um, Spain had settled New Mexico with the idea of converting Indians to Christianity, but also to prevent further expansion by its imperial enemies, France and Britain. Rather than accommodate Indian expectations in trade and alliance, the Spanish policy dictated that Indian nations be incorporated completely into the Spanish Empire. Now, this policy required military conquest and cultural domination in order to convert Indians not only to to Christians, but to laborers and ultimately to Spaniards. This approach had been successful under the Aztecs, which was a hierarchical hierarchical society that Spaniards were able to essentially decapitate and take control over. Smaller groups like the sedentary pueblos and semi-sedentary navajos, apaches and others were not so easy to conquer and incorporate. In response to native's own social and political organizations, the Spanish discovered that they might be able to dominate native societies but not dispossess them entirely. Spain needed New Mexico territory because it was constantly looking for silver to fund its imperial activities, and major silver deposits were found there in the early 1600s. The economic life of New Spain was mining, and miners were supported by cattle ranchers, wheat and corn farmers, and the political, political, military, and religious officials that kept order and kept Indian laborers working. But before the Spanish arrived natives in the region had established their own system of trade and exchange and um, political authority. This system revolved around the ideas of kinship and acculturation. Acculturation is the idea that two or more societies can come together and each society is changed by the other. Pueblo Indians lived in protected villages. They were farmers, and historians had always assumed that hunter-gatherers like the Apaches were enemies of the Pueblo, but then they realized um, that the Apache language uh, was a relatively new arrival to the area, that it came, linguists learned that Athapaskin, which is the name of the Apache language, migrated as recently as the 1500s, from the northern part of the continent. And what we have learned from this linguistic evidence is that Apaches, Navajos, and Pueblos worked together rather than competed for resources. The Apache world, its uh, places of importance particularly, was laid out around the Pueblo world um, as newcomers might lay out their settlements and territory around the people who are already there rather than pushing them out. Uh, apache and navajos apaches and navajos were pedestrian hunters they were not on horses yet um and so they would follow game both small and large animals um to sustain their communities and whole groups also worked to hunt buffalo again not with horses but with their feet essentially the Apaches are some of these buffalo hunters. They uh hunted buffalo on what is on the southern plains, what is now parts of Texas and oklahoma um, and used the products of buffalo, meat, skin, bone, etc, to trade for other kinds of food as well as as goods that Navajos and pueblos produced. Apache hunters engaged in an exchange with Pueblos, particularly at major trade centers like Picos, Texas, and Taos, New Mexico. They traded in food uh, that they gained from their hunts for cornmeal um, that the Pueblos grew and produced. Apaches did not have any transportation. As I said before, they were pedestrian hunters. They used dogs to carry um, goods. And while we think of them as nomads, they also had semi-permanent settlements on the edge, particularly of, of prominent trading centers that they shared with the Pueblos. There was some violence between Pueblos and Apaches, particularly prompted by issues of resource scarcity or relationships that had developed through the course of this trade. But violence was not at all the dominant um, mode of, of exchange between Pueblos and Apaches. It was much more about peaceful trade for things that each group produced that the other one needed. Europeans, particularly the Spanish, entered this system of reciprocal exchange But the Europeans did not understand how an exchange system would work along these lines. Um, Europeans, conquistadors particularly, who were the sort of the front lines of colonization, were profit-oriented, not exchange-oriented. And so when they received something, they wanted to keep it. So a profit could be built up rather than exchange it for something else that was needed. There's... um, A much longer story here about how the Spanish came to effectively control most of this territory south of New Mexico through the 1500s. At first, they established control most firmly in the Caribbean, where Columbus arrived, and then in Central and South America. In North America, they made some inroads, like we talked about in the southeast with the Guale and De Soto's expeditions, but Indian resistance in those areas was in some ways more successful. The Spanish established their first colonies in the Americas in Florida in 1565 and then in New Mexico in 1598. Explorers did come through much earlier. The Spanish explorer Coronado came through in New Mexico in 1540 and 1541, searching for the seven cities of gold. As I said earlier, Spain needed such minerals to fund its colonizing enterprises, and that's why Coronado was there. Um, they had the requerimiento to read, and whenever a Coronado and his 400 men would encounter a native village, they would read the requerimiento, and they would often destroy it uh, if destroy the village if they needed something that the villagers had. Now, as you can imagine, Coronado and his men were mounted on horses and wore armor. Um, The Spanish were using horses as weapons, not just as transportation. And they traveled through the southwest and plains. What they found, in fact, was not any gold, but they found lots of resistance from native peoples. Anytime Indians had a chance to... um, Resist Coronado's attack after the reading of the requerimiento. They did, and so Coronado did not have a lot of success. But in fifteen ninety eight, a man named man named Juan de Onate. Onate is spelled O N A T E. Took possession of Mexico and convinced <coughs> excuse me New Mexico and convinced the pueblos to become vassals of Spain. Oñate's conquest of New Mexico was at his own expense. The Spanish government did not pay him anything to do this, did not fund his expedition. He had gotten wealthy in Central and South America, and so used that money to expand northward into what is now New Mexico. Uh, One example of Pueblo resistance to Oñate's conquest was found at Acoma Pueblo. Acoma is A-C-O-M-A. And when the Acoma fought back, um, not having horses, not having the kinds of metal tools, armor, and, and weapons that Oñate's men had, Oñate directed his men to brutally destroy the Pueblo, to burn it down, and kill m- most of its re- residents and make refugees out of the others. Now, the Spanish government did not look kindly on Oñate's actions. He was actually punished by Spain for abusing Indians in this way. And so there are examples of both humanity and inhumanity in this system of colonization. In 1608, about 10 years after Oñate's first venture and conquest of New Mexico, New Mexico became a crown colony. It became controlled by the Spanish crown, and it was funded by the Spanish crown and not by Oñate himself. At that point, the Spanish began planting missions among the sedentary Pueblos, but they had no success with the Apaches or the Navajos, who moved around more than the Pueblos did. Now, the Pueblos were receptive to conversations over religion uh, with Spanish priests, because there's some aspects of Pueblo religion that are familiar to Catholicism. Pueblos have um, important ritual objects. They sing and chant in similar ways that Catholics do, of course, speaking different languages, and uh, which is not to say that there was much that was very similar about Pueblo religion and Catholic religion, but the ceremonial elements of both religions have certain things in common. So Pueblo leaders were polite, to um, Spanish priests, and they expressed interest in their religion. Um, and missionaries moved in, quickly followed by settlers in New Mexico. As settlers moved in, New Mexico was divided into encomiendas, into these plantations that uh, used native labor to sustain New Mexico settlement and extract um, material for the benefit of the crown. The labor requirements on the encomiendas were very intense, and Pueblos could not see how they were benefiting from this this labor on the encomiendas. Priests who had established missions persecuted Pueblo religion very harshly, and the priests began to consequently lose authority in the Pueblos, lose the kind of good relationships, goodwill that they had had with Pueblos earlier on. In the meantime, Indians were learning Spanish technology about horses and guns. Um, when, they, when Indians married Spaniards, it meant that those Spaniards became part of Pueblo society, and so the Spanish uh, communities and cultural ideas became less, uh, un, less unfamiliar or more familiar to Pueblo people. This process all happened through the presence of encomiendas mm <laughs>